right, welcome back to Building a Fighter. My name is Dr. Austin Shane, sports chiropractor in Scottsdale, Arizona. With me, as always, badass strength coach in Denver, Colorado, Alex Friedman. What up, Alex? Yo, how's it going? It's living. It's living. We both uh, had a little game of VR before this, shooting some uh, virtual reality orcs. And now we're going to educate you guys on what do coaches, so sport coaches and strength and conditioning coaches, need to know about healthcare. Um, this is a brainchild that I, I really want to talk about. I feel like I get asked a lot of questions on like this and that and all of these different capabilities. And I want to set the record straight with everything I can. And first, I want to talk about what is the difference between being injured and being hurt? And what I mean by that is, can an athlete participate or should they be staying out of participation? Um, and with this, Alex, do you have any questions on, on in your head, being injured versus being hurt? Yeah, I mean, in general, I think it's important as us as strength coaches to like understand our limitations as far as like, can this athlete participate or not? That's kind of how I differentiate like injured and hurt, right? Like mm-hmm. if you're hurt, either specifically or in general, like you can still participate to a medium degree, right? Yep. But if you're injured, then you're kind of out of the picture. You need complete rest. And injured can be like one body part. Like I broke my leg. Okay. We can still do upper body training. Like we can do certain things that are going to, um, listen that, but that, I guess that's kind of my differentiation is like injured is like full out, like full shutdown. And then hurt is like something we can work around or, or even like almost train into, I guess. Does that seem correct? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say, I would even break it down when I'm thinking about different categories, right? It's should they be no participation, limited participation, or should they just push through, right? And these different categories have these, I guess, main characteristics with them. So if they should not be participating, this is going to be like our concussions. This is going to be like our, our, there's bruising and there's swelling. Typically bruising and swelling means that there's at least a moderate sprain or strain in the area. They should probably not be participating in movements that involve that joint. Um, That doesn't mean that they can't do if it's an ankle upper body, because you definitely still should be training, but cutting them away from lower body movements. Um, This is also typically any sort of pain that is sharp shooting or electric. If they have any of these three different types of qualities of pain, I immediately would say, hey, we're going to cut out that activity. Yeah. Um, those those typically lead me more towards, hey, there's acute trauma in an area or it is a neurogenic issue. So it's, it's from the nerve, that electric type of pain. So an easy example is like a disc herniation shooting down the back of the leg during like a uh, deadlift. Like they, every time they're in the hole, their first movement might be a little bit of lumbar flexion. Their body doesn't have the tolerance of that lumbar flexion. There's an active disc herniation and it shoots that pain signal down the leg. And they're like, oh, it's my hamstring. When in reality, it's their back. So that would be a hard stop on that movement until they go to see a healthcare professional. Then does that make sense or any questions on that? Well, yeah. And I mean, I, I, I kind of liken it or think of like, is the stove too hot? Right. Yeah. Like, yep. like if it's too hot, don't touch it, you know? So that's where mine goes. And then I like that you kind of categorized each different type of pain for us, because a lot of the times, like I just asked like, Hey, was there pain during that? You know, like in yes or no, or kind of ish, you know, like as long as an athlete's being honest, we have a good rapport there, then I can either judge from that. Is it too yep. hot or, or should we keep doing it or not? So, um, but asking what type of pain and like where, how helps 
to uh, make that decision as strength coach too. Yeah. And I would, I would argue for the most case quality of pain. So how they describe it is more important than the actual objective, like pain scale. Number. And how much, yeah. because if somebody describes something as sharp and then they say it's a one out of 10, obviously that's probably wrong. Yeah. <laughs> right. But you, I've seen that time and time again, where people are like, it's sharp. And then I'm like, well, zero to 10, how bad is it? Oh, I have a high pain tolerance, which is what every single person that ever talks to me says. <laughs> and, oh, it's only like a one, but it's probably like a six for everybody else. I'm like, well, that doesn't give me anything, but you said sharp. <laughs> so it's, that is a higher quality of pain. Right. Yeah. So asking the quality, so not, not trying to handle the pain, not trying to mitigate the pain, as a strength and condition coach or a, or a sport coach, but asking what type of pain so that if you have to be the middleman talking to the healthcare provider on your athlete's behalf, you can have a little bit more knowledgeable um, conversation with them. Because I immediately, if, if you were to tell me, Hey, uh, my athlete comes in or it came into me, he had sharp shooting pain down the leg that was brought on by deadlifting that immediately, I don't care about the pain score. I don't care about anything, percentage, whatever. If it's sharp shooting pain down the leg from deadlifting, I immediately go straight to disc herniation. And that helps me on my path. Yeah. And not only that, that it like gives you more insight and helps us know like a quality of information standpoint, like it's going to give you a lot of power in the situation too. Because a lot of the dilemma that I think a lot of strength coaches and sport coaches find themselves in is not necessarily like, how do I manage this or how do I, you know, help this athlete return to sport or get better? Like the hardest decision is like, what do I do right now in the middle of practice? Right. Like how, how should I react and handle this? Like, is this enough for me to say, go sit out, you're done for the day. Or do I need to say, keep going lightly unless it progresses? Or should I say, you know, tough through, keep going. Like that's, that's the decision that that's hard to make. So I think that'll help if you get a quality of the pain as well. Yep. And then we get into, we should modify some of the exercises and some should be cut out. That would actually be more likely the, uh, the ankle injury patient that would come in or the yeah. ankle injury athlete where you modify the legs as much as you can. So maybe you have them just do, um, like uh, sissy squats where it locks the ankle in place. So you're not moving through the ankle and there's not a bunch of pressure there. You could have them work that area. You don't really have to worry about and like dorsiflexion of the ankle that could be injured, that could be further irritating, and then have them go through the movement in a body weight pattern. That's an easy way to modify, right? Yeah. And now I, th I see that a lot in strength conditioning. I think that's a relatively, um, that's a big component of your job as a strength conditioning coach, right? Mm -hmm. Is modifying the program to fit the person best. And obviously you're going to count for injuries or, or hurts in that process. But from a sport coach lens, right, I think that's where it gets more tricky to modify certain drills for athletes and, you know, because it's quote unquote not fair now or, or somebody's being soft and blah, blah, blah. And I think that is a lot harder context to, um, especially in MMA when you have a partner, right? Yep. Like, you know, they want to go hard. So that's where it gets hard for them to kind of modify the drills. What, what would you suggest as far as like in technical, tactical practices, modifications? So typically if I'm talking to a sport coach in general, um, I would, I would say that you need to be upfront and honest with your athlete and they need to be upfront and honest with you because a lot of the times it's the athlete thinks the coach won't modify. So they don't even ask <laughs> yeah. and there's no communication and they just go through the practice and it further irritates. So the first thing is asking your athletes and actually having a genuine interest and asking them how they're feeling. If there was some sort of threat that you know about. 
Okay. Second thing, you have that conversation. Athlete comes to you. They say, oh, maybe it's a, we'll say knee injury with wrestling, right? Um, the front of my knee hurts and it's been swollen for four days. Then immediately what I would say is whether you have a veteran on the team, a captain, a coach, somebody that's willing to do a little bit more graded of a practice, I would have them do, instead of doing impact wrestling. So like top bottom or like taking shots, I would have them modify their practice to then focus on, maybe we're focusing on Greco today. We're focusing on like body locks and stuff like that. Or maybe we're just going to hit snatch shots where you can still get a wrestling practice, but it doesn't have to be exactly what the rest of the team is doing because this athlete needs a little bit more individual training and individual little help to still get practice in, but not further injure the area. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I don't know why kind of we as sport coaches like assume that that's like a bad thing. I feel like there's a stigma in like in in, in the practice room. If you have to make a individual change for one person, it's all of a sudden unfair to the whole team. You know, like I think that's a stigma that we can in, need to brush back on and kind of create an equitable practice environment for people where we just understand that like everybody's has their own individual needs. Like I think that's something that's come on a lot stronger in strength and conditioning and, and healthcare is obviously a hugely individualized process, but we can make that technical tactical thing more individualized for more athletes at a lower level. Yep. hundred percent. And it's, it's cool because you could also like in striking, it's a lot easier to handle, right? Yeah. <laughs> like I picked a hard example with wrestling with striking. Hey, athlete has shoulder pain. Hey, maybe you're just going to work on, you break them out. The athlete tells you, oh, I'm having shoulder pain. I really can't throw my two today. Then maybe you just do a full jab day where you're focusing on just jab mechanics with that athlete and they work on the bag and then they just do kicks on the bag. There you go. You completely avoided the right shoulder, like not causing further injury or further irritation. And then they're still able to get a fantastic practice in it just modified to their needs. So it doesn't have to be zero to 100 in sport practice that that happens a lot with a lot of teams. Yeah, there should uh, be some sort of modification. And honestly, if there's not, if you don't, if you have a team of 30 and there's not one person modifying, that's probably on you. <laughs> Cause yeah. I bet you there's at least one person in there that's dealing with an injury and they probably don't feel comfortable telling you that they should be modifying and they're afraid you're going to say no. So yeah, ask your athletes yeah. more and more. Yeah. And I think that's the job of a coach to, to, be knowledgeable about the team and be able to pivot and create those specific practice plans too. Um, but yeah, I've, I've been told multiple times with athletes, like, you know, practice like a cold pool, you just got to jump in. Like there's no halfway, half out, whatever. Like, you know, I, my knee's not all the way back, but if I want to practice, this is how I have to do it. And I'm, I just, I kind of shake my head. I was like, that, that doesn't have to be how it is. You no. Know? And, and that goes into another thing I want to talk about is return to return to play. And we'll get back to yeah. full participation after this, um, sure. but return to play is return to play should be a graded approach Yeah, <laughs> that you see this all the time with people coming back from in MMA, coming back from concussions where they're like, Oh, my symptoms are gone. And they just jump right back into everything except of, instead of doing the correct scaled approach where we add in aerobic aerobic conditioning. Then we add in a little bit more strength-based stuff, more bracing. We add in plyometrics, stuff that'll rattle the head. And then we get back into our skill practice from there. It should be about a 10 day ramping period. It shouldn't be a 10 to 14 days. It shouldn't be a, Oh, I don't have a headache today. I'm going to go 
do wrestling practice as hard as I can, which oh, I man. see time and time again. Amen. Yeah, it happens all the time. So that's that's another thing. I really hope not just skill coaches, but strength and conditioning coaches too, because it's the same thing could happen. You could have an athlete recovering from concussion. They got uh, easy examples. They got they got dropped, but they still won the fight. So they might not have a suspension. They, they might be yeah. out riding on cloud nine. They come back. They try to train right away. If you got dropped, I can almost promise you that you have some sort of minor brain trauma. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like I, I hate to break it to you, but just because you didn't go out cold does not mean you don't have minor brain trauma. So they should not jump right back in to strength and conditioning at hundred percent or even just GPP. There should be a graded approach where you start with a little bit more of an aerobic focus and making sure symptoms don't come on because maybe it's three weeks. This, this has happened to multiple of my fighters. It's three weeks after the fight. They haven't had any symptoms since the fight. They go back to skill practice or one time with me, we just went back into strength and conditioning and it was at like a 70%. It wasn't terrible, but then they had their first symptoms since the fight right yeah. there. And it's not the first time they exercised, like they were running on their own and stuff, but that bracing strategy that maybe wrestling brought it on because you have to brace too hard, or maybe they maybe caught like a grazing elbow from somebody sprawling that yeah. flared up the trigger. And it's because we didn't do a scaled approach of if it's skill practice, you should probably do 15 minutes of static drilling, hitting the bag, something that'll rattle the brain a little bit, but in a controlled environment, then you go from just hitting shots to hitting shots and getting somebody sprawled on you at 50%. Then you go from hitting shots, getting sprawled on to maybe a little bit of a scrambling scenario or a play wrestling. And then you go all the way to live wrestling, right? It can't just be zero to a hundred. Right. And I think that, like you said, the quality and the control in the environment is the biggest thing because I mean, and I know with a lot of return to play protocols I've seen is like some practitioners and again, this and that. And I've just, they've essentially given up on controlling any of the practice time or trying to have any quality control in it. And then they went to a model of, well, you know, we're on a return to play back from concussion and he can go hard. He can practice for 30 minutes, you know, and we'll just limit the time that way, but that's not really accomplishing the goal. Right. Like, right. Y- yes, that's limiting the duration, but the intensity still might be through the roof. You know, mm-hmm. it might be live wrestling. It might be this. It might be that. And like and then, you know, and like you give an athlete an inch, they're going to take a mile. Like, yep, that's just how it goes. Right. Because all athletes are ambitious. and want to get back to training. So it's hard. Or, well, I guess I should say most. But that gets to be really hard. Um, a crossover, because I know that's where skill coaches push back on healthcare practitioners. You know, it's like, you're not writing my practice plan. You can't, you know, tell me what to do within my practice and with this athlete, but um, yeah, but that comes down to relationship building. Cause like I, yeah, that, that just means you got to put in more effort. Cause I, I know for a fact, if I went into fight ready today and I talked to angel Santino, Allen or Eddie or captain, and I said, Hey, they need to be limited in their intensity. It shouldn't be more than a five out of 10 and they should only do 20 to 30 minutes. That's all they're cleared for. They're immediately going to say, okay. And there's some of the best coaches in the world. Yeah. So it it's, it's not something that's impossible. It's something that they need to show. You need to show them that you're not going to just take things away. And that's, I'm talking about healthcare practitioners out here. You should be the person that says yes, as much as you can, not the person that says no, just because you can like you, you should err on the side of more activity, as long as it's not going to further irritate things than, than just saying, no, you should, you need to stop everything. Cause as soon as you become the no guy, no coach is going to trust you unless, unless it's physically needed, right? If there's a broken bone, you got to be the no guy. Right. The common example is the stress fracture in a runner's foot. You got to be the no guy. Unfortunately, if there's a stress fracture in your runner's foot, you can't just say you can continue to run 10 miles a day, but 
as long as you're saying yes, as much as you can to, oh, hey, maybe you can do everything else except for running. You can do the bike because it's not, it's low impact. You can swim. Like you give them different options that you're still saying, yes, you're just taking away one part. Yeah. And I think that's the important thing. And I, I've almost even had this experience as a strength coach too. It's like, what can I say yes to? Like, and, and maybe it's not in a specific injury type of standpoint, but it's in a, you know, overtraining or it's in a, how to best manage symptoms type of way. But like, what can I say yes to? It's like, you want to do extra cardio. Okay. Go swimming. That's going to be easier on your knees that happen. Mm -hmm. Or like, or if we talk about going back to practice with a concussion protocol, it's like athletes are, you know, asking strength and conditioning coaches question where it's not really in my wheelhouse, you know? So I think there, there has to be a recognition there of like boundaries. And I've gotten more comfortable nowadays just saying, you know, like that's not my call or, you know, I genuinely don't know what's going on with that protocol or what's going on there. And I think as a strength and conditioning coach or a skill coach, you need to be, you need to like know enough to be dangerous. You know, don't need to know enough to like, this is going to sound very weird. Know enough to do a bad job of healthcare, but then also know to not do that. Well, you should know know enough to triage. You as a strength and conditioning coach, in my ideal world, strength and conditioning and fitness is in the medical profession. Because it it should be it should be the base entrance level of medical of medical work, right? Yeah. You're trying to stave off injuries and illnesses by fitness. So you should know enough to triage on who to send it to. Not everybody needs to go to a Cairo. Not everybody needs to go to an orthopedic surgeon. Not everybody needs to go to a naturopath. You should know who to send to when they ask you the questions, at least in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. The the, the referral is such a strong tool. They're like weapon in your belt that I think, um, we need to utilize more. And just to your point earlier of like working harder, make better relationships, like strength and conditioning coaches need all those relationships too. Like if you don't, if, if an athlete's asking you about making weight constantly and you don't have a dietitian to like Mm -hmm. refer out to, or Mm -hmm. if they're coming to you with all their injuries, like, and you don't have a physical therapist to refer out to, like you need to do a better job of growing your network within the, the context of your area or field. Heck yeah. I can't tell you the amount of times that, oh, I've shit. I've sent athletes to Christina. I'm like, yeah. I, I don't want to deal with this. Just talk to her. She knows <laughs> what, she's way better than this. That's what her degree's in, but it, it's, you got to have that network and an easy, I'm going to give you like the TLDR version. Cause I don't want to go into this. I want to go back to the, the able to fully practice. Cause I think that's yeah. an important part is so sharpshooting pain down the leg. Please don't refer that straight to an orthopedic surgeon or a neurologist. That's probably going to set your athlete up for surgery. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You need to have in, in the no referrals. Yep. It's not, and again, I don't mean to, you know, hate on doctors or general hospital or whatever healthcare, like that's not who you're referring to, right? You're referring to, you know, people that are in the know with sports. Um, and then they can give you a lot more accurate view. And I mean, I know Austin has a couple of horror stories of just, you know, it's orthopedic or surgeons that just don't know sport. Well, it's not even that it's they, if all you got is a scalpel, everything's a knife and there's a time and a place for surgery. I shit. I've sent at least five athletes for surgery this year and yeah. there's a time and a place and they need it, but you should do conservative care first in almost every case, as long as it's, it's able to be done. Same thing with like injectables. Like I would prefer my athletes to do conservative care before they do injectables. Cause you don't really know the long-term effects of these solutions yet. We, we truly don't. Yeah. Um, the other thing, so sharpshooting pain down the leg, that's probably a disc herniation. You don't need a microdiscectomy or surgery. I don't care what anybody says, unless it's in the middle of your spine and it's causing occlusion of the entire spinal canal. 
Most of the time, conservative care helps with that. So please send them to a physical therapist, Cairo, a good Cairo, not a fucking shitty Cairo that's going to just crack your back um, or somebody on the conservative side. Another thing is bruising and swelling of an area. They should immediately stop that activity. That's that's sign of moderate trauma. And you should send them not to the ER, please. They don't need to go to the ER, <laughs> um, but say, hey, you should probably go see a physical therapist or a chiro for this, a sports chiro I'd prefer, because those are orthopedic injuries. Basically anything that's a bone that's not broken, a muscle, a nerve or a ligament or, or connective tissue, I would send to a physical therapist or a chiro. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of people go directly to a general, like a GP or to an orthopedic surgeon. And well, that's kind of the backwards. Because- yeah, I was gonna say it's because they don't know where else to go, right? Exactly. Like- yep. And P- they, exactly, and it's it's just a lack of knowledge, and that's why I wanted to get it out there because those are those are two extremely like common <laughs> yeah. uh, things that happen that they go directly to a GP or a surgeon, and then they just get cut open instead of probably avoiding surgery. Would you put concussions on that list too? As far as go to a, a um- <sighs> well, please don't go to a GP because they're not going to do anything. Um, unless you have a really, really good GP that's up to date with cognitive stuff. I would go to a neurologist for a concussion um, or I would go to actually, no, the first place I would send you would be a neurologist and then, or a physical therapist or Cairo that has the complete concussion management um, certification. And you can find that at CCMI.com, I believe Um, that's their abbreviation, but they're cleared and they have a really good understanding of how to diagnose and how to treat concussions. I would say they're probably out, outside of being a neurologist. They're probably the top tier of who I would send for rehab and um, and con. Um, sorry, symptom resolution. Is that uh, that CCMI thing? Is that healthcare practitioner like limited and based in, or is like constrained? Can you do that? Can anybody do that? Um, I don't know if they're going to come out with a strength one, but it's. I know right now it's just physical therapists, chiros, and medical doctors. Okay. And, and DOs. Um, but anybody that can diagnose a concussion, that's what it's for right now. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. yeah. But it would, that would actually be an interesting idea making a course for strength and conditioning coaches based around that for what's your role in concussion management. Right. And I think, I mean, there was a little bit of that when I was coaching wrestling, like I got, you get that concussion kind of standard protocol and they give you really blanket like symptoms and how to identify it. But, um, but I think in general, that would be a really good idea for a course of like, you know, what coaches need to know about injuries, not necessarily just like health and safety procedures and like concussions or like, uh, ethical behavior type of stuff, but like mm-hmm. legitimate, like injuries, like what do you need to know and, and how should you act? Because I mean, obviously there are a lot of coaches out there that do a good job of it with it, but at the same time, like you can be you can have a great knowledge of what might be happening or whatever, but you don't necessarily need to diagnose or treat in session, right? It's like, I know I probably know what's happening, but I know that I need to either stay away from it or I know that I need to refer out for it. Right. Like any, like a great example would be like, Hey, you have an athlete with front of the knee pain, patellar tendonitis, right? right? And what you guys should know is that eccentric loading of that patellar tendon takes away a lot of the symptoms in that athlete. And mm-hmm. actually it's okay to go through pain in yeah. patellar tendonitis because that okay. is, as long as you're doing it, like the standard protocols on a slant board, you're doing cyclist squats and you're eccentrically loading through the patellar tendon that's been shown through 
almost every study ever done on it to heal the tissue and take away the pain. AKA but shin splints as well. Kind of. Patellotinitis is also shin splints, correct? No. All right. Educate me. Um, shin, well, I'm not, I don't want to get into that because I think shin splints are relatively, they're overdiagnosed. It's kind of like plantar fasciitis. It's typically neural. Okay. So what? what's your uh, pathway with shin splints? What do you do? Um, I do. So I do a lot of dermal tractions with a cup. Um, so at first I would dive into my neurodynamic screen and see, is it neural or not? Yes or no. So I'll do a full assessment with that based around the nerves of the lower limb and going into the foot as well. And can I tension that and recreate the pain that athlete's feeling? Yes or no. So it's just a, basically a straight up yes or no cascade all the way through the tibial nerve, sural nerve. Um, and actually I'd probably go through the tibial nerve most likely, um, And then, so after that, I would go probably into dermal traction with my cups and have them go through movement. So I would have them like pump a gas pedal and just dermal traction over that. And does that take away the pain by just lifting up compression onto the nervous system? Yes or no. If it's a yes, if it completely takes away symptoms, then it's probably a superficial nervous system issue in the area, not just repetitive trauma over and over and over again of the leg, which is what people think it is. But if you think about like, I'm already on the pathway, so we're going. If if say somebody overstrides, they're an overstrider. And every time they reach, they're going, they're basically doing a modified slump test every overstride they do. So they're running from a rounded back. They don't have trunk stability. Um, With that, they get the compression mechanism of taking the step. They're starting in a dorsiflex state, which is a slump test. And as they take that step, that's full neural tension all the way through. Right. And then you get all the way to the end, you get into plantar flexion, but every step you take is a neural load. If there's not a neurodynamic, if there's a neurodynamic cause in the middle, so it's not gliding and sliding the way that it should, or there's any sort of, I know pain science people hate it, like adhesions in the system or just things that aren't moving properly as far as the nervous system goes, typically that leads to pain somewhere. So you, this is very common with like high hamstring pain in runners. um, That's typically neural in nature. This is extremely common in uh, shin splints and runners and plantar fasciitis to where it just manifests as these injuries outside of the spine. When in reality, it's actually an EXPOSS, an extra spinal uh, or, or extra spinal pain of a spinal source. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so that's my little thing on shin splints, but if it is true shin splints, it would, it would typically show up in like Tim anterior area. And it's probably instead of like patellar tendonitis, it would be directly right in front of the patella and it would be affecting the patellar tendon is that it's the answer you were looking for. Right. Uh, Yeah. That that one (laughs) sentence could have saved us the whole rant. You didn't want to go on, but went on anyway. I know, but I have that every time a student comes in, I go on that rant. So I might as well just get it out into the ether too. So I can say, Hey, this is our hundredth episode, by the way, guys. Hey, listen to the hundredth building a fighter episode. (laughs) Let's go. Um, Yeah. But all right. Full, full activity. Let's finish out that one point. Cause I have more points. Um, full activity. So this is going to be if any sort of symptoms are brought on by biomechanical uh, issues. So easy example is medial or medial knee pain in a squat and boom, you have them go through a modified oblique sit or for whatever or banded lateral walks and immediately go back into the squat or you do like an RNT where you push their knee in, they have to push out and the symptoms are cleared up. That's just biomechanical. That just means you need to be a better cure and, or have a better warm up 
And then they can just continue that activity and go back to full participation. So I would always check a biomechanical source. Now there's a lot of theories on and pain science right now, do biomechanics matter? But I would say for athletes in my mind, yes, they do, because it's not just about pain. It's also about performance and efficiency. And we know that just because you can do things every way you want truly does not mean that that's the best way it should be done for that given situation. And that's where I think biomechanics and efficiency really take over, not just in pain. Yeah. And I think that's one of the largest pillars of strength and conditioning is creating efficient movement back. Right. But if you talk to like crazy, like down, down the rabbit hole pain scientists, they'll say that that's just a myth and that that really doesn't matter at all for anything because there's no research to back it up, even though there is. Well, I mean, I mean, like, excuse me, but fuck research, you know, like logic, like pass the logic test, you know, like if I'm trying to throw this punch as hard as I can, you know, sorry, but twirling my arm around like Popeye and then trying to throw it hard as I can is not the most efficient way to do that. But <sighs> logic. Okay. See, I don't disagree with you, but I wouldn't say fuck research, <laughs> but I, I would say fuck being in that on, context, only tied correct. to research and not having also common sense. Yeah. Well, you know, if we relied on research for every decision that we made throughout the day, you know, I don't know that I could get out of bed. Nope. I would not. Because is <laughs> is getting out of bed. Re- well, Research probably says that getting out of bed is way more risky than staying in bed all day. It's true. It's true. Same with like driving. So I don't know. Probably can't do those things anymore. (laughs) Uh, All right. So you got any questions on any of that return to play stuff like that? Um, I think the return to play stuff is fairly, um, I don't want to say straightforward, but the information is there. Like as far as need to be accepting of modified drills, modified effort and time in um, practice and like communication is, I mean, like, and that's like the crux of building fighter, right? Is like communication between these disciplines, physical therapy, strength, conditioning, skill coaching. We need to be able to have clear lines of communication and like, for lack of a better term, like lines of authority too. It's not yeah. just like, you know, it, they're in my gym. So I make every decision and I'm the king, right? It's like, just cause they're at, strength and conditioning doesn't mean that I'm not adhering to the physical therapy pro- pro- therapy protocol. Just like I'm not, I'm going to continue to adhere to the culture of the team when they're in skill practice. Right. So I think there needs to be some like ego swallowing in that aspect of things, but again, create good relationships and good communication is like, is I think the harder part about this, but I think as far as what we're going into the return to play and hierarchy and understanding of modified practice, recognizing your boundaries, like maybe I know what's going on, but I shouldn't diagnose a treat right now. Um, it's all like, I'm going to jump in real quick, please. As you're a strength, if you're a strength coach, do not diagnose. (laughs) I I, I feel, I know I shouldn't have to say that, but there's people that are doing manual therapy as a strength coach. There's people that are, there's crazy shit. They're acting like doctors. And I don't care because there's a very low likelihood you're going to hurt somebody, but I don't want you to get sued. And if you're diagnosing without a medical license, that's literally, that's practicing medicine without a license. And there's crazy chiros out there that'll think that you're infringing on their turf. And, and I'm not saying that you should, that you should be doing it because please don't, but there's people out there that are going to call the cops on you because people get butthurt about that stuff. And just for the listeners out there, just, just punt when in doubt, just punt, because if they're forcing you to do that, they probably don't have your best interest in mind. Yeah. I, I, I would totally agree with that. I think strength and conditioning gets in a weird rabbit hole where it's like, I want the guy that knows the most and can do the most, mm-hmm. but 
that's not ultimately the best game plan because, you know, I mean, I've done the RPR certification and I understand like generally um, a lot of healthcare, quote unquote, healthcare like practices, right? And I'm not saying RPR is a healthcare practice, but I'm saying that one of the main guidelines was like, don't put your hands on the athlete. No, it's like, it's like, well, why is that part of the protocol? It's literally so you don't get sued. Like it's not, it's not because I I couldn't do the job or whatever. It's like, so I don't get sued. And it's like, so I still want to do this thing and I want to have it in my back pocket, but I don't want to be, and I want to be able to implement it, but I really shouldn't be, but this is a way around that, you know, that, and I feel like there's so many things like that. Like I see it with like distraction all the time. Like so many strength conditioning coaches, like manually distracting stuff or, you know, like, that's actually a dangerous one. Please don't do that. <laughs> or like, or like improv, and I don't want to say massaging, but like, you know, soft tissue releases, you know, like right. valid in a sense, but not hands-on. You know? well, what I tell people is when you go to school, like for I, people still don't think Kairos are doctors and that's fine. I don't really give a fuck, but it's, it's a pretty strenuous program. It's a full four-year program that, that it's hard shit. And what you learn in that program is treating somebody is the easiest thing you do on the job. The whole fucking reason you're there for full for four full years is so that you know when not to treat somebody. It's so you know when the 75-year-old gen pop client that comes to you that's on blood thinners and has a history of blood clots should not be cupped. They should not be getting a massage gun through their groin and around their neck because that's a risk. And if you don't know the red flags, if you don't know when you shouldn't treat, you probably shouldn't be treating in the first place. And that's where my head's at. Yeah. And I mean, and everybody has their strength conditioning, like park or release or whatever, but you don't know these people's healthcare history. No, like, exactly. In general, like, you know, I, I can list off injuries that a lot of my athletes have had, but a lot of athletes are relatively healthy people, but you make one mistake and it's not worth it anymore. Yep. You know? So well, dude, I'm a healthcare facility and you should see the amount of shit that I like people leave off their own health, like in a healthcare form, they leave off the yeah, healthcare, yeah. their previous health history. And I have to ask them more. And I'm like, well, why the fuck didn't you put it on the form? Like well, that would have helped. About it. I just didn't think about it. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, that the form took too much time. There's too many questions. I'm like, motherfucker, it's because I care about your health. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's the thing you need to know, but like, again, are not immediately or don't seem immediately res- re- relevant. So yeah. Yeah. Kind of get, but um, so I think one other point that Austin, I know you wanted to touch on, um, we talked about distraction being kind of dangerous, but if something's hurt, should I just stretch it out? Should I have my athletes just, you know, stretch if their hamstrings no. tight? No. Um, just like you do pre exercise testing, or at least I hope you do by the amount of times that we've preached about it on this podcast. Um, you should probably assess, is it muscular tension or is it neural tension? Um, most of the time, especially lower limb issues, stretching a tight hamstring. So I would say would actually, it's going to further irritate the problem, not actually help the problem. It's going to help the symptom, which is the hamstring tension, but the actual problem for the most part in combat athletes is in the low back. It, it's a it's higher likelihood it's in the low back than in the hamstring based off the current research. So it's actually going to prolong the disc issue. It's going to prolong with the neurodynamic issue. And it's going to prolong the length of time that the hamstring is tight for that athlete. So it's going to make the bout worse. 
So even though you think that it's helping, it's actually hurting. So we need to have strategies of, do I know if it's neural or do I know if it's mechanical or muscular? And an easy way I have people do it is, uh, I mean, there's something called a slump test, but it's basically just like a uh, RDL reach right? You're flexing the spine, you're lifting the leg up straight, and you're going to dorsiflex, dorsiflex the foot. Just like how people do their walking RDL, like floor reaches. You know what I'm talking about? The dynamic warm-up? Yep, 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 yep. Like that, a I mean, scoop. that's essentially a hamstring, or that's essentially a slump test. It's just loaded. So have them do a walking scoop, right? And does that make the pain more than if the person drives, uses their hamstring and maybe they do a, uh, a Nordic hamstring curl, which one hurts worse? Well, if it's going to be the scoop versus the hamstring curl or actually engaging the muscle, if you can engage the muscle and it's not going to recreate the symptoms, well, it's probably not a muscle strain. That's like literally like that's muscle testing one one mm-hmm. <laughs> but time and time again, we have these people that are, they're stretching the hamstring when the hamstring isn't the problem. It's, it's the symptom and the muscle tests or your loading of the musculature doesn't recreate the symptoms, but they're still going to stretch it away. That doesn't make sense. We need to affect the neurology. So in that case, to use that full circle, I would have that athlete, if they were positive on the scoop and negative on the muscle test flip on over and I'd have them affect the low back. I'd have them jump right into prone press-ups like a McKenzie method. And normally if it's in clinic, I would do a full McKenzie screen, but an easy kind of catch all because a a vast majority are extension biased low back discs. I would have them go into like four sets of 10 press-ups and then have them do that scoop test again. Cause you always want to test or test, treat test or test exercise test. If you don't have the post test, how do you know it got better or worse? You'd have them do that test again. And does that, is that better or is that worse? If it's better then guess what? Press-ups are probably something you should throw in their warmups on loaded back days. So if we're doing back squats or deadlifts. Yeah. And the way, the simple way that I kind of think about that and look at it and like, again, this is a, a me has strength coach view of all the neurology that Ross just talked about is like, it's a, it's a Chinese finger trap, you know, like when you used to play those with those as a kid, like mm-hmm. you stretch the hamstrings, like you can pull it, you can keep pulling it apart. And like, maybe it feels a little looser, but it's not actually, you know, letting your fingers go. Yep. Right. And then you flip over in the prone press up and you kind of uh, go into it or press and uh, shorten kind of the nervous pathway. Then all of a sudden it releases a little bit. Bingo. Right, that's yep. again, that's the that's the analogy that I kind of use on a lot of things and like continually overstretching the hurt area or whatever is just gonna make that Chinese finger trap tighter and tighter and tighter. And you're almost like feeding into the problem rather than trying to fix it, which is obviously your end goal. Yep, hundred percent. That's a perfect analogy. And you also see this a lot with like uh repetitive elbow pain, like medial elbow pain or like uh a lot of the times, if you get radiating pain down to the pinky from the elbow, right? Yeah. And you're like, oh my God, I have elbow pain. I think it's the actual ligament in there. I think everything's damaged. I need surgery. And then we go through and and all you have to have them do is just like act like a, I mean, the most of the test is like a waiter carrying a tray. And then once they're in that position, you just extend the arm. Is that the elbow pain you're feeling? If you lean your head away, that's just a neural tension test. And it's a super easy one to learn. It's not illegal for you to do. It's just an exercise. And that's an easy test. Is that the elbow pain you're feeling? Yes or no. Oh, have them try to do a curl or like a wrist curl. Is that the elbow pain you're feeling? Yes or no. Have them do a ulnar deviation with a five pound dumbbell. Is that the elbow pain you're feeling? Yes or no. 
and figure out just through, is it muscle or is it nerve? Once you know if it's muscle or nerve, you know, it's either going, it can be stretched or it can't be stretched. And that's kind of the strength coach's goal right there. Makes yeah, sense? And, yeah. hundred percent. And, um, I don't know. I was just about to say that, like, since I started listening to you, Austin, I, I haven't always listened to you if, if we're being completely honest, but mm-hmm. since I started listening to you, I started prescribing prone press ups like tenfold more. Yeah, dude, almost. I would say nine times out of 10, if I have somebody doing deadlifts, I will have them in their warm up or superset with the deadlifts, prone press ups. Yeah. I've been, and I've been taking my uh, approach to like breathing and bracing and again, prone press ups, whatever that been interlaying that a lot more within like a warm up or like uh, one of my favorite. And again, this is kind of off topic, but one of my favorite new uh, like supersets that I do for warm up is like jump rope for a minute. Okay. Uh, supine belly breathing, mm-hmm. 10 breaths. Yep. Pop back up, jump rope for another minute. And we go dead bug breathing. And it's just a bunch of breath drill kind of interlaid into jumping rope, which is also kind of monotonous. So yeah, we can kill two birds with one stone and it seems, I don't know, my guys seem to like it. So yeah, no, I, I like that a lot. I like, I just like adding in neurogenic or n- neurologic exercises in general, because their movement patterns could just be fucked because of the nervous system. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah, what's going to make, what's going to make the muscles know. tight. What's going to limit the mobility. Well, the nervous system's going to do both of those things. So you could be trying to do your hip cars over and over and over again. And their hip mobility isn't actually increasing because it's just good. Dis- it's a disc herniation and that's limiting everything in the area, no matter how much you try to mobilize. Right. Right. So you're looking for a, a mechanical fix to a neurological issue. And that's like, again, like, Strength coaches are really well versed, I feel like, in the mechanical world, right? And I yep. feel like in strength conditioning coaches are not always taught in the neurologic world. We're taught in a in a sense of like, oh, CNS primers and uh stretch shortening cycle and uh almost like reflexes, but we're not taught is like your biomechanics and your movement patterns are just as neural as they are mechanical. Yep. Yep. Well, and you're like you're that. taught about peripheral tissue. You're most of strength and conditioning is taught about peripheral tissue and not about the the central structure yeah yeah so i think that that gets more into the point of stretching or not stretching uh to end that debate what um what are some i know we had talked about some areas let's give them three different things yeah i think it's a common injury you see right and especially in mma is like and i was thinking of a scenario as far as like your strength and conditioning coach athlete b comes into the weight room says man this has been hurting me for a week. What do I do? You know, and like as a strength and conditioning coach, again, I'm not trying to diagnose. I'm not trying to figure out what's going on, but I want Austin to give knowledge and insight into what is going on and what can we actually do? What like steps actually move forward? Um, yep. And the first one that I've been seeing a lot is like rib issues, right? Okay. Like you come in and like, oh man, it hurts every time I breathe. Uh, no, I hurt my ribs. How do I put it back in place? Is like the biggest question. Is like, can I pop my rib back in place? And it's just like, where to, where to go? My ribs yeah, is like, where to like, go? Where, what do I do with that? Yeah. Is, are you holding it in your hand? Did it just leave <laughs> your skeleton? I don't know. It doesn't go out. It's out to dinner. Those are all my favorite jokes in clinic. Um, They're not good. I laugh at them. That's all that matters. It's about me guys. Yeah. That's how Austin lives his life. Um, no. So rib injuries. Uh, so first thing I like to look at is is it rotational based? Is it breath based or is it both? So 
if it's rotational based and it's just on one side versus both sides, um, then I'm that little bit geared more towards like an intercostal sprain strain. Um, if it is just breath based, then that leads me more towards, Hey, it, it might just be like a quote unquote rib out, but it could just be a fixation or a, uh, joint restriction of the costovertebral joint. And that's going to lead me more towards mobilizing that area. Um, or if it's both that typically to me leads me more towards the sprain strain slash potentially a superficial nervous system. Cause we got our intercostal nerve issue. Um, First thing I do almost always though, is I have them do breaths and I teach them breathing and bracing. So most of the time I, I don't always have enough time to go over a full breathing and bracing thing, right? Athletes come to me, they want to go into it. They want to start training and I have to layer it in when I have time. This is the time that you do have that time to talk about breathing and bracing with the athlete, because this is when it matters. And I think it's an approachable thing because all of a sudden, oh, it hurts when I breathe. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's talk about breathing. You know? Exactly. So this is where I jump into my DNS breathing. Um, and that's exactly what I would tell strength coaches everywhere is even if you can't be hands-on, if we're talking about combat athletes, you could have them wrap their jujitsu belt around their belly button and their back in an equidistant area. So you just loop it around and then they have something to breathe into. You put, have them put one hand on their chest, one hand on their belly. The chest hand don't move. The belly hand does. This is going to decrease the stress and the the movement, the painful movement of that rib, whether it be a sprain strain, whether it be um, a fixation, whether it be neurogenic, it'll take, it'll put less movement into the thoracic cavity and more into the lumbar area or into the lumbar spine area and bracing. So that desensitizes the movement and no matter what that's typically going to take, I'm not even saying typically, no matter what, that's going to take away some symptoms by teaching them just how to move or breathe properly. Okay. Yeah. So we go belly, we go sides, we go back. Typically I do 10 breaths at each or until they get the next level. So they, most people can do belly. Then I move to the sides until they're able to breathe on both sides. Then I'll transition to the back um, and then make sure that they can breathe into both the the left and the right side of the low back. Boom. After that, I start going into our sideline shoulder sweep assessment. I use that in clinic. I use that as a strength coach. It's the perfect place where you can do it. So you'll have them lay on their side, knees at 90, hips at 90, arms out in front at 90 degree of flexion for both palms on top of each other. You're going to trail it around, open up the spine as they rotate one side or the other, see when they start to feel that rotational pain. I just have them right there. We go into our graded, uh, uh, graded exposure exercises and they go to the point of pain, come back, go to the point of pain, come back. And they just keep going, moving and grooving, kind of like putting WD-40 on the joint. Sometimes people get that cavitation or that pop that they're looking for. It doesn't necessarily mean the pain's gone, but it feels like a relieving thing to their brain. And that's a good thing. But the important point there is that's your test. So sideline shoulder, shoulder sweep, and that's also going to be the treatment or the mobility as well, except now you're not going the full range of motion. You're just poking the bear, bringing it back, not pissing in the Cheerios and going full circle. Okay. And then the last thing that I like to check is thoracic extension. So whether that be like a Cressy curl or like a uh, kneeling elbow, uh, a chest sink, um, or it could just be because I am in clinic, I do an actual manual screen, but, or you could put a foam roller on the wall and have them lean back. Is that relieving? Yes or no. Is the pressure that's put on their 
in any way, shape or form good for the joint. Because typically if the pressure on the, the thoracic spine takes away some of the pain, that's adjustable. And that's just a mobility deficit that should be taken care of over time. And every fighter I know has horrible T-spine extension and rotation. Oh yeah. Yeah. And what I've been seeing recently is because if you think about the mechanics of the thoracic spine, you have to, if you're going to rotate, there has to be some element of extension as well. Right. So I've been doing a bunch of rotation-based exercises and it clears up both. Yeah. And now with that, so I, again, I'm going to kind of get on a rabbit hole of this. I, I coach a lot of um, like lateral med ball tosses mm-hmm. from kneeling, half kneeling, standing positions or whatever. And I coach a lot of guys out of, I guess that's not the rest. Essentially, I guess it's a lot more lumbar extension that I Correct. tend to cue people out of. So, all right. Answer my question. Perfect. Let's talk about knees because, you know, that's the one, another one of the most common things we walk in. Hey, my knees really hurt today or backwards knees sled every day. Knees over toe protocol. Knees over toes guy. <laughs> He's on Joe Rogan. No, um, please don't just start doing a bajillion backwards sled walks. I've had actually four separate patients come in because they started that because they had knee pain and it made it worse. Um, yeah. because it, guess what? Surprise, surprise. It ended up being neurogenic and doing a backward sled walk is again, just essentially a repetitive slump test, always tensioning the sciatic nerve over and over and over again. Um, so oh, knees, who, what's, what are they complaining about? Is it inside, outside, top, bottom, in the joint, outside the joint, achy, sharp? What do we talk about? Let's say lateral and let's let's put on my anatomical hat inferior to the patella lateral and inferior to the patella so on the on the lateral portion like lcl area or like in the front anterior lateral area anterior lateral yeah so like like the front outside kind of of your knee Okay. So for that, I would start by loading the quad. Does that recreate the issues? Yes or no? Because it could just be referred pain from quad tension and or patellar tendinitis and or uh, maybe they just had a heavy squat day or they had a heavy wrestling practice the day before. Load the quad through TKEs. That's fine. Yeah. You do TKEs. You could do uh, banded knee extensions. You could have them um, shit. You could just put an ankle weight around their weight. That's any sort of loading to the quad, if it recreates the symptoms, you know that that's a player in what's going on, right? Yeah. So after that, actually one of my favorite ways is a yoga ball because then it can't, it, you're at a, a little bit more of a stretch state and you have them try to push into the yoga ball. They can't get full extension. So that's, that's a way that I've been doing recently anyways. And that's the same thing I do for hamstrings too. So the next thing that I would go into is I would have them go into a, almost like a prone pop prop situation. I would, and it's a, it's a femoral nerve tensioner. So I'd have them go into a prone prop or like the, the regressed stage of the prone press up. I would have them bend their knee towards their butt and then point their toe towards their face. From there, I would have them drop their head down and then extend their leg out and then bring their leg up and then look up to the sky, right? That's going to slide the nerve back and forth. Does that create the same pain you're feeling? Yes or no. If it's a yes, then we know the femoral nerve is a player in this issue. If it's a no, then we know that the femoral nerve probably is not a player in this issue. Rules out the neurogenic thing. That tells me immediately, can I stretch it or can I not stretch it? If femoral nerves involved, do not fucking stretch that. I don't mean to be frank, but that's going to further irritate it. It's going to prolong shit. And I've seen it like a good amount of time so far. Um, After I go into that, 
then finally I'm going to focus on maybe it could just be a biomechanical thing. If I haven't been able to recreate it yet, then I'm going to jump into my biomechanical um, assessments. Actually, I just had a athlete come to me that was suffering from this exact thing, thought it was meniscus because that's what most people's heads jump to if it's anterolateral. And it's in the, if they feel like it's in the joint, it's meniscus. Um, And in reality, so I was able to do all the orthos and all the tests and stuff. And they all pointed to negative. And I'm like, well, did you just have like a heavy squat day before? And we couldn't do it with a muscle, like a muscle test. But then I just had them load the hamstrings and loading of the hamstrings in four sets of 20 of hamstring rolls on the yoga ball immediately took away all the pain. So it was literally just, he needed to load the posterior chain more and he needed to offset the quad tension because he had a heavy squat day two days ago. That was it. And that's just a biomechanical assessment. So it's going down your progressions of, is it structural? Is it neurologic or is it biomechanical? And just focusing from there and knowing what to do. But those are my three steps typically. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, And the last one, a little bit of a, I don't know, not a spoof, but I mean, I, I'm always kind of dumbstruck and it's like, I can't do anything about that. Like guys for, especially MMA, my hand and my foot hurt today. You know, I kick somebody's elbow. What should I do? Or I, you know, I, I punched, uh, or I don't know. My hand hurts from hitting something, whatever. But it's like your foot's gonna hurt when you kick somebody's elbow. Like you did, yeah. you you damaged it. Like you're gonna bruise it. Like I'm sorry, we can like offset some of the load through it, but I don't have any exercises that make the pain go away. So I would say, yeah, in small joints, I immediately start to question fracture. So my first step is the tap test easy to do. You're going to do about a seven out of 10 pressure. So like if you're tapping your own wrist, you should be able to hear a sound. Okay. That's the pressure that you're looking for. Go to the exact site of pain, tap on top of it. Does that feel like you want to punch the person in front of you? Yes or no. If it's a yes, like if it's a 10 out of 10 pain, that shit's fractured. Get the fuck to a hospital. (laughs) If that doesn't raise it by more than like two out of 10, then that's probably not a fracture. It's probably just the direct pressure is causing irritation because there's inflammation in the area. Yeah. Okay. So that's my first step. Next step is I'm going to check. Is it, I'm going to go into my muscle tests. Is there a area of that? So if there's a muscle that goes over that area or affects that action, if you load that musculature, does that increase the symptoms or create the symptoms that you're feeling? Yes or no. So you could do, have them put their hand over their hand, say it's like a ring finger injury, on the left side, you're going to have them go into extension with their hands, put the other hand on top, and they're going to try to push their fingers towards their face or into their hand and load the extensor tendons of that area. Does that increase the pain they're feeling as it's a similar quality, which is an extremely important point. If it's a different quality, that's probably not the same thing, but if it increases the pain and it's the similar quality, then that's probably what it is. If it's not, if it doesn't increase it, then you keep putting your thinking cap on and we go to the next test. And then finally, after that, it's, is direct pressure. If you squeeze it, or if they're able to move it, do they have full range of motion? And if they can squeeze it on their own without the tap test, does that recreate the exact same pain that they're feeling? Yes or no. To me, if that recreates the same pain, the direct pressure, but slow pressure, not the sharp, abrupt tap, then it's probably a bone bruise. Yeah. In which case then, Hey, I'm, if it's a bone bruise, you could, you're probably not going to make it worse, but for the sake of your athlete, just modify. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I end up modifying a lot of movements, especially through foot and like, you know, dorsiflexion is, is kind of the, the key, you know, loading pressure through the foot, especially if we're going through some of these, these tests. Um, 
But yeah, man, like, I don't know. I think an unknown savior in strength and conditioning realm is knowing how to modify not holding something. Yeah. Well, Mike Boyle talks about that. It's it's not just progressions and regressions. You got to know lateralizations. And if you don't know lateralizations like the back of your hand, you're always going to be behind the person that does. Because that person that has five different options for one movement is always going to be better than the person that just has one. And they say, just shut the fuck up and do the lift. Yeah. hundred percent. So yeah. Be able to apply your craft in multiple ways. Hells yeah. Did you want to share anything else about healthcare and what we as sport or skill or skill coaches or strength coaches should know about it? Austin? No. I mean, uh, you said it earlier, but be comfortable saying, I don't know. I say it all the time. And I'm the person that people go to for healthcare advice. <laughs> right. uh, and I, I say, I don't know and look it up after. So don't feel bad by saying that you don't have to be the guy with all the answers, especially you head coaches out there. Cause I know typically like this head sport coach, you're the guy that people go to, you're supposed to have all the answers. And this is one of those things that I would rather you as a healthcare provider say, I don't know, than try to handle it on your own. Cause you might make it worse. Right. Um, other than that, I think we covered a lot of shit. And if you guys have more questions or if you want another one of these, I know this is a dent podcast, but if you made it here and you got more questions, hit us up or just tell us in our promo post that you want you, what the question is. And maybe we might do another one of these. Cause I can see this being a, uh, a series too. Yeah. And I think that's, I don't know, not something that's overlooked, but something that we, we can push more is like, we will interact with you. Like if you ask us a question or send us a message, like, we're a hundred percent on all our response rates or all our kind of answering on that. So don't be afraid to, you know, leave a comment or shoot us a message or anything of that realm, like contact us, like we're two, like a relatively small business, two guys. And we're always going to just respond and it'll be us in person. hundred percent. Yep. Yeah. So that was our, what do strength edition coaches need to know about healthcare and skill coaches? Uh, if you guys have any questions, like I said, hit us up in the show notes. Um, if you want more topics on this, please comment to us. If you need our strength conditioning programs, not just want them, but need them, go to buildingafighter.com. We have seven programs available as far as strength conditioning goes and one low back course, which is going to help strengthen the low back and prevent further injury to the area. So hit that up at the website. And then on top of that, that's all I got. So This is Dr. Austin Shane, Alex Shreven, and we are out. 